Why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer and we will get started with chapter 8, verse 12. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us here tonight to study your word. Be with us now as we go through the book of Romans, chapter 8. And we pray it will be a blessing to us. And may we be those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And may we be the sons of God, joint heirs with Christ. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what we've seen so far in Romans chapter 8 is the concept of either walking after the flesh or walking after the spirit. And when you walk after the flesh, you are under condemnation. You are at enmity with God. When you walk after the Spirit, you are no longer under condemnation, and you are at enmity with the devil. And Christ has made it possible for us to have the power to walk after the Spirit because He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned the power of sin in our flesh so that His righteousness can be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. We see that to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And it's interesting that just as to be carnally minded is death, in Romans chapter 6, it says the wages of sin are death. So to be carnally minded is death, the wages of sin are death. So having the carnal mind is to commit the wages of sin, and the carnal mind is defined in Romans 7 where Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not, but what I hate that do I. So when you do the things you don't want to do, and you don't do the things you want to do, you are of the carnal mind, and you are committing the wages of sin. And we also saw that when we walk after the Spirit, the Spirit of God dwells in us. We saw last week from Ephesians 3 that when the Spirit of God dwells in us, we're strengthened with might in the inner man. It's Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. We are filled with all the fullness of God, and God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. That's what it means to walk after the Spirit. And finally, in verse 11, we saw that the spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead, if he dwells in us, he will also quicken our mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in us. This is connected to the concept of imputed righteousness from Romans chapter 4. We saw that last week, so I'm not going to go through that again. So that's where we've gotten so far in Romans chapter 8. So picking up in verse 12... Paul says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. And, and so what he's saying here is, look, um, Jesus paid an infinite price for us. So even though we cannot earn salvation because of what Christ has done for us, he's made it possible for us to no longer live after the flesh. And verse 13, he says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if, if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So mortifying the deeds of the body is similar to crucifying the old man of sin. And in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So let's just diagram this out. So in verse 14, we have... 
a definition of being sons of God. These are those who are led by the Spirit. So if you're led by the Spirit, you're the sons of God. Now, all of us want to be the sons and daughters of God, right? So how do we be sons of God? We're led by the Spirit. What does it mean for, to be led by the Spirit? It's the same thing as walking not after the flesh, but walking after the Spirit. What does it mean to walk after the Spirit? We studied that last week in Ephesians 3. The Spirit dwells in us. And then Christ dwells in our hearts through faith because it's His Spirit dwelling in us. When that happens, we are filled with all the fullness of God. And God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Now, it, only, it would only make sense that if God identifies us as his children, we would have the characteristics that he has. Does that make sense? Like father, like son. So if we're led by the Spirit, we're called the sons of God. When we are led by the Spirit, God's Spirit dwells in us. We're filled with all of the fullness of God. So if you're filled with all the fullness of God, you will be a representation of who God is here on this earth. So therefore, God calls us his sons. And that's what it means to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Continuing on in verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, when we look at verse 15 and we see the term Abba, Father, the, the idea that Paul is creating here is that when we are the sons of God, the way we look at God is in a tender, loving sense. It's not a dreadful fear when we look at God. When we think of God, when we think of the Father, we think of Him in the most tender, loving way because this is the Father who sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, who died for us and has made a way for us to become His children. So as we become His children, we look at Him in a very tender and loving way. And in, continuing on in verse 16, it says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Notice this, so the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. So what the Spirit does, it looks at us and says, these people who are the children of God walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So they have the Spirit of God in them. So when the Holy Spirit sees that God's Spirit dwells in us, it bears witness that we are the children of God. You see that? So when we walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, the Holy Spirit bears witness to God on our behalf that we are indeed the children of God. And verse 17 is significant. It says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, 
that we may be also glorified together. We're going to spend a few minutes on this verse. So verse 17 says, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, <clears throat> when you are an heir, what is promised to you? Inheritance. So when you are God's children, you are heirs of God. So the promise is the inheritance of God. Now, how would you like to receive God's inheritance? I mean, what an amazing deal. We've reached the point in Romans where we've gone from being by nature children of wrath and facing condemnation and the judgment to being heirs of God. That's, that's the gospel. That's incredible that we could go from walking after the flesh, doing the things we don't want to do, not doing the things we want to do, and because of those things, we're deserving of condemnation and wrath and the judgment. And yet the love of God says, because you're walking after the Spirit, you've accepted my son's sacrifice, you're walking after the Spirit, not after the flesh, you're now heirs of God. And you may say, well, that's nice, I'm an heir of God and, you know, we're God's children. But Paul wants to make it very clear what level this inheritance is on. Who is our inheritance equal to according to Romans 8? It says we're joint heirs with Christ. That's incredible that because of what Jesus did for us, we can now be joint heirs with Christ. And again, that's the power of the gospel. How is it possible to have such good news? So let's look at this here. So we're heirs with God. We're joint heirs with Christ. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting. It says we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. There's a condition, though. It says, if so be that we suffer with him that we may also that we may be also glorified together so Christ passes through an experience to receive this inheritance and those who suffer with him will also be glorified together with him 1 Peter 4 1 of course comes to mind talking about suffering together with Christ and we've actually looked at this verse earlier in the study. But 1 Peter 4, 1 says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. So notice this. Christ is heir, we're joint heirs with him if we suffer with him. How did Christ suffer? He suffered in the flesh. So what do we do? Arm ourselves likewise with the same mind. What happens when we arm ourselves likewise with the same mind? We suffer with Christ in the flesh and we cease from sin. 
So <clears throat> it would be fair to say that if we are children and heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ, and if we suffer with him, that would also mean that we would have ceased from sinning. So to be children, to be joint heirs with God is no light statement. It actually means that, yes, we're walking after the flesh. I mean, sorry, we're walking after the spirit, not after the flesh. And if you're walking after the spirit, you're filled with all the fullness of God. And God is doing exceeding abundantly above all that you could ask or think. You're passing through the experience of suffering in the flesh, but you're walking after the spirit. And through that, we have ceased from sinning. It makes us heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Now, just to point out this concept of being joint heirs with Christ, being sons of God, being children of God, in Hebrews 1, this concept is pointed out, and we've done this in our Hebrews class. But in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 6, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. What's interesting is earlier in chapter 1, it talks about how um, the son has been appointed heir of all things. So the son, who is Christ, is the heir of all things. And yet in Romans 8, we become joint heirs with Christ. Christ in John chapter 3 is the only begotten, but in Hebrews 1, he is the first begotten. And in Hebrews 2, it talks about how the captain of our salvation will bring many sons unto glory. So Christ, who is the heir of all things, because he came to this earth, he died on the cross, goes from being the only begotten to being the first begotten. Because he became the first begotten, he could bring many sons to glory, which means that there could be second, third, fourth, and on down the line begotten sons and daughters of God. And those who become begotten sons and daughters of God become joint heirs with Christ. And that is the good news, the, the amazing news of the gospel that Jesus came to this earth as he came from earth from, as God. He's still God on this earth, but he becomes a human being. And because of what he does, we as fallen sinful human beings can become partakers of Christ's inheritance with the Father. So that is incredible good news. Okay. Galatians 4 7. That's right. So Galatians 4 7 says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So it's pretty clear. Paul points it out in Hebrews, Romans, Galatians, and in other places that. When we become the children of God, the sons of God, we become joint heirs with Christ. It's also clear that those who have this experience are those who walk after the spirit, not after the flesh. 
Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to keep moving here, and um, we're going to get to some of the high points here, and probably starting in verse 28, but we will hit some key points starting here in verse 18 as we go. Verse 18, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, he just said in the verse before, if we're going to be joint heirs with Christ, we will suffer together with Christ. Because Christ suffered to become heir, and if we're going to be joint heirs, we will pass through the same experience. It's only fair. Verse 19, or, and sorry, let me say one other thing. However, even though we pass through suffering, the glory that awaits us far exceeds whatever suffering or trials we pass through now. And that's an important thing to remember. Yes, we may suffer, but the glory and the joy that awaits us at the end far exceeds the suffering of the present time. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature, it says that in the King James, it would be accurate to translate that creation. So the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. So in verse 19, Paul gives, he implies that we're still waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? The sons of God are those who are led by His Spirit. Who, what happens when you're led by the Spirit? According to Ephesians 3, 16-21, God's Spirit dwells in us. We are filled with all the fullness of God, and God does exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And so, after we have that experience, we are heirs with God, joint heirs with Christ. And Paul is saying that creation is waiting for this manifestation. So, <clears throat> when you look at Romans, it becomes pretty clear. Romans chapter 6 talks about being dead to sin and being servants to God. The servants to God are the 144,000 in Revelation 7. There's other... Illustrations, Romans 7 talks about being married to Christ and the old man being crucified. We should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead. And that connects to Ephesians 5, where the church and Christ are one flesh, which is the mystery of God, which the second advent movement was raised up to fulfill. And then we get to Romans chapter 8, and we see that there will be a group of people who walk not after the flesh, which is the Romans 7 experience, being carnal, sold under sin, doing the things you don't want to do, not doing the things you want to do, and seeing that being carnally minded is enmity with God and it, and it is death. And yet there will be a group of people who walk after the Spirit, who therefore will be the sons of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, and these people have the experience of being filled with all the fullness of God, and creation is waiting for that manifestation. It's the manifestation of God's people in the Second Advent Movement especially. Verse 20, For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Verse 21, Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So notice, sin had an effect on creation. 
and it's sort of an unspoken thing. I mean, the creation, the rocks and the mountains don't literally cry out, but it's implied here that it, it will be a great day when the effects of sin are removed from creation. And that will happen when we have the manifestation of a group of people who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Now it's interesting, verse 23, Paul says, not only they, which is creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit. It's interesting that Paul would use the term first fruits of the spirit. Is there another place in the Bible that describes first fruits? Revelation 14, 144,000 are the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And yet, those who will compose the 144,000 as first fruits will pass through the experience of suffering and they will look forward to the experience of a new body. Um, because even though we walk after the Spirit in this life, we still have the effects of sin all around us, and we have the flesh to contend with. Verse 24, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is not seen, or sorry, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? So clearly what we are waiting for, we have not yet seen. We still hope for it. Verse 25, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And there's the word patience. We've seen that word a few times. We think of Hebrews 12, but we also think of Revelation 14, verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So those who are hoping for the end, something that has not yet been seen, while we are saved by hoping and waiting for something that we have not yet seen. We wait for it with patience. And that's a characteristic of God's last day people. So it's interesting how you can see the characteristics of the 144,000 just popping out all over um, the book of Romans, especially here in chapter 8. And that all of creation is waiting for this people. So starting in verse 26, this is where things get pretty interesting. Verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So here, as a group of human beings, we are born with, with a fallen human nature, and we have to contend with the flesh, and we have infirmities because of that, and so the Spirit helps with us, helps us with those infirmities, because if we by faith believe in the power of God, then it is up to God to use His power to help us with whatever infirmities we may have. So we pray, we ask God for help, we know that we have the flesh to contend with, 
we don't want to walk after the flesh anymore. We want to walk after the spirit. And so the spirit helps us with our infirmities. What happens when the spirit helps us with our infirmities? The spirit of God comes in. He dwells in us. We're filled with all the fullness of God. And God does exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. We may think there's no way that I can overcome this sin or that sin or this infirmity or that infirmity. But if God comes into us through his spirit and if we by faith believe in the power of his spirit, then there's nothing too powerful that God can't help us with. So the Spirit helps us with our infirmities. And sometimes we don't know how to pray for the help that we need, so the Holy Spirit helps us. He makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Verse 27, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And here's the word saints. So we've seen the word patience a few verses earlier. Now we see the word saints. So these ideas keep coming back up. But <clears throat> notice verse 28. It says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, based on what we've been studying in Romans chapter 8 so far, who do you think Paul is describing when he says, those that love God and those who are called according to his purpose? These are the sons of God or the children of God. So the sons of God, the children of God are those who love God. And these are the ones who are called according to his purpose. So what happens to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose? What happens to the children of God? All things work together for good. Now, <clears throat> it's possible that people have sometimes misused this passage of Scripture and say, well, you know, I went into the bar and... Um, did some things in there that I never should have, but all things work together for good. That's not what this passage is saying. Absolutely, that's presumption. This passage is saying, if you're the children of God, filled with the Spirit, filled with all the fullness of God, where God does exceeding abundantly above all that you could ask or think, you may pass through trials Remember how in verse 17 it says, If we're joint heirs with Christ, we will suffer with him that we may be glorified together with him. Look, suffering is not a pleasant experience. It wouldn't be called suffering if, if, it, if it was pleasant. Suffering is not pleasant, but it works together for good if, you're, if you love God and you're called according to his purpose. So... That's the promise that if we are his children, if we love God, if we are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. And then verse 29, continuing on, Paul says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And here we see this concept of Christ, the Son, being the firstborn among many brethren. There's a lot in there, but we've already talked about how Christ went from being the only begotten Son of God in John 3 to being the first begotten Son of God in Hebrews 1. And because of that, he is the firstborn of many brethren. Who are the many brethren? These are the sons of God or the children. And just to explain the language here, of course, God knows everything, so he knew that every one of us would exist. 
And the word predestinate does not mean predestination the way John Calvin defines it. It simply means chosen. God knows every one of us. And everyone who was ever born, God had a plan. God has a plan and the devil has a plan. But God has a plan for each one of us to put us in a pathway that will save us. And so he knew that we were going to come along. And he had a plan, he, a choice for us. What was that choice that he had for us? That we would be conformed to the image of his son. It makes us think of Romans 12. It says, um, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what Paul is talking about here, that we should be conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30, moreover, whom he he did predestinate, or those he chose to be conformed to the image of his son, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, this is where things get really powerful, because as you understand what's happening here in Romans. At the end of chapter 8, this is really the end of Paul's theological exposition of the gospel. So he's going to save the very best for the last. And we're going to see that here. Paul's going to talk about the very best part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does he do? He says, them, those he predestinated, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So here we have, let's just diagram this out, in verse 30, so God has chosen before we were ever born. He had a plan for us to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he did predestinate them, he also called. And to be called, we think of the passage that says, Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. So when God calls us, it's not, he, he, this is his plan. His plan is for us to be conformed to the image of his son. But he has to call us or we won't know. So he calls us to come out from among the world and be separate, touch not the unclean. So we're called. And those who are called, as God continues his work, as we see his plan for us, we are justified. Now, Paul has already explained in Romans what it means to be justified. The experience of Abraham in Romans 4, Abraham was fully persuaded that what God promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. So Abraham believed in God as creator, the creative power to, to take something that is dead and bring new life. We also see in Romans chapter 6, um, it talks about how we can be raised to walk up in newness of life. And then in Romans chapter 6, Verses 6 and 7, it talks about our old man is crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And in verse 7, it says, for he that is dead is freed from sin. And of course, we've said this many times, the marginal reading for freed from sin is justified. So in order to be justified, you must be dead to sin or crucified with Christ. And of course, Ellen White says, 
in First Selected Messages, page 366, and Faith and Works, page 100, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. So, what are we saying here? God has chosen us to follow him, but he's also called us, and those whom he has called, he's justified, and whom he's justified, them he's also glorified. Now, let's think about this for a minute here. <clears throat> Have we been glorified? No, that's a future experience. And we've actually looked at that earlier in this chapter. It talks about how those of us who are saved by hope, or those who are the children of God, wait for the redemption of our body. That's our glorified body that we're waiting for. So, who then, or, or, according to Romans 8, verse 30, what would be the experience of the children of God that we've been studying about? So, the children of God, they are not walking after the flesh, but they're walking after the spirit. That's a present experience, and yet we're waiting for glorification. So the present experience for the children of God is to be justified. And you may say, well, you know, and if, so if you're justified, then you're heirs with God, you're partakers of the inheritance, you're joint heirs with Christ, so on and so forth. How do we know that the sons of God or the children of God are currently justified? Because the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. And if you're led by the Spirit of God, you walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And if you walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, you are no longer under condemnation. Which means, if you're no longer under condemnation, you've received justification. But furthermore, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You're filled with all the fullness of God. If God's Spirit dwells in you, according to Ephesians 3, that means Christ dwells in your heart by faith. So the Spirit of God dwelling in us is the same as Christ being in us. And in Galatians 2.20, it says, I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So that's Galatians 2.20, Christ living in me, and I'm crucified with Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's the faith of Jesus. And in Galatians 2.20, it says, I'm justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. So it's a, it's a long pathway, but you can show that the sons of God are those who are justified because God's Spirit is in them, which means that Christ is in them, which means they're crucified with Christ. When you're crucified, you live by the faith of Jesus. In Galatians 2.16, when you're justified, you're justified by the faith of Christ. So when we get to Romans 8, we're talking about the sons of God here. It says, moreover, whom he did predestinate. So God ha predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his son. He then called us to that experience. And as we come out from the world, he justifies us. And those who are justified will ultimately be glorified. So that's the sequence of salvation. See, some may ask, well, where's sanctification? Well, in the Hebrew mind, justification and sanctification go hand in hand. They're part of the same process. Now, verse 31 is interesting as we pick up here. 
what shall we say then to these things? It's like, wow, so if I'm a child of God, I'm justified. So what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So what does it mean for God to be for us? If God is for us, that means we're not under condemnation, which means we're justified. So if God says we're justified, who can be against us? And this is, this is powerful. It's like once you're convinced in your mind, I'm a child of God. I'm a joint heir with Christ. I'm on the level of inheritance with Christ. I have justification. If God says that about me, who can be against this? And then... Verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Notice the significance of verse 32. Like if God be for us, who can be against us? What does it mean for God to be for us? He spared not his own son. He delivered him up for us. And with that, he freely gives us all things. Now, what do you think the all things refers to here? Being justified and being glorified. Or being predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. All the things that we've just discussed in Romans chapter 8. Right. Everything that we've discussed in Romans 8. And the inheritance. He freely gives us his inheritance. So this is really unbelievable if you think about it. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We're worthy of condemnation and the judgment. God spares his own son. He sends his only begotten son. And Jesus dies for us. And then we can become joint heirs with Christ. And it's free. And yet the devil somehow makes people think that they have to give up so much to follow Christ. And yet, look what God did for us. He gave up his son. And he's offering salvation to us for free. Now notice verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? This is very similar to who can be against us. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And I like what he says in the next half of verse 33. It is God that justifieth. So in the judgment, look. God's the one that justifies, so it doesn't matter if the devil or anyone else comes and says, hey, I remember all those sins that Norman committed. Hey, it's God that justifieth. That's the bottom line. And that's right. And you may say, well, how is it that when a charge is laid to God's elect, that God can just say, well, he's justified. Remember, in Romans chapter 3, it says that God can be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And we talked about what that means. But notice as we continue here, so in verse 34, it says, who is he that condemneth? So there's this pattern here. It's like, if God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elected? It is God that justifieth. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? Well, just as people try to lay something to the charge of God's elect, look, God justifies. When someone tries to condemn, hey, look, it is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, 
who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, let's think about this here. Satan tries to condemn us and say, they've sinned. You can't save them. But God says, no, well, Christ died. And he's risen again. And he's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Now, it's interesting. In Romans 4.25, it says, Christ was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So Christ died and he's risen again. He's raised again for our justification. Where is he at? He's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. And we need to break this down a little bit. So Christ died. He's risen again. And now he's at the right hand of God. So, nobody can condemn us because Christ died. He was a sacrifice for us since he offers forgiveness. But he's also risen again for our justification. And he's seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Now, we've been studying this concept of the right hand of God in our Hebrews class. And there's some significance to this. When we see Christ at the right hand of God in the book of Hebrews, and this is very important. If you don't get anything else from tonight, this is the part to take away. In Hebrews 8.1, Christ is high priest at the right hand of God. In Hebrews 12.1 and 2, Christ is the author and finisher of our faith at the right hand of God. So what does it mean when, we have, when we're talking about Christ who died and he's risen again, seated at the right hand of God? This is what we have. We have Christ as our Savior, who is the sacrifice for our sins, who, was risen, who has risen again for our justification, and he's seated at the right hand of God as our high priest and the author and the finisher of our faith. So what's the good news that when Paul says, who is he that condemneth? Hey, don't worry. You have your Savior, your high priest, and the author and the finisher of your faith seated at the right hand of God on your side. So who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. He died and he's risen again, seated at the right hand of God as our high priest and as the author and the finisher of our faith. So this is important as well because this then describes what Jesus is doing to get a group of people to be justified in the judgment. What is Jesus doing to get a group of people to be justified in the judgment so then that when the devil tries to lay anything to the charge of God's elect or when he tries to bring them into condemnation, God will say, hey, I'm the one that justifies. Here's what. Christ is our high priest. Well, he's our savior, he's our high priest, and he's the author and finisher of our faith. Those three aspects go together in what Christ is doing at the right hand of God to get a group of people who will be justified in the judgment. 
So what does Christ or high priest do in Hebrews chapter 8 to get a group of people that will be justified? He is the mediator of a better covenant. And what does he do as the mediator of a better covenant? He writes his law into our hearts and minds. So that's the new covenant. And so the law comes into our hearts and minds. So then clearly, Christ writes his law. We have an obedient group of people. As the author and finisher of our faith at the right hand of God, it is Christ's job to get us to run the race with patience, the race that has been set before us. So Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. His job is to get a group of people to develop patience as they run the race set before them. So what's the race? Laying aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And we may say, well, that's impossible. I can't lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us. Well, first of all, Christ is the forerunner, so he ran ahead of us. Secondly, Christ was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, and he ran the same race. So God says, if any man will follow me, let him come after me, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So then we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Christ, as we look to him, we look at him as our sacrifice. When we see what Jesus did for us on the cross, our hearts melt and say, how can I hang on to the sin in my life? Jesus did too much for me. God delivered up his own son so that we could freely have salvation. By God's grace, I'm going to lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset me. And I'm going to run with patience the race set before me. Now, Jesus helps us to begin the race as the author, but he's also going to help us to finish the race while he's seated at the right hand of God. When you get to the end of the race, that means you've finished the same race that Jesus finished. So what kind of faith do you have? Faith of Jesus. So what's Romans 8 saying? Romans 8 is saying, who is he that condemneth? Well, you can't condemn because Christ died as our sacrifice Yea, rather, he's risen again for our justification. He's at the right hand of God as our sacrifice, high priest, and the author and finisher of faith, making intercession for us so that he can have a group of people that as high priest, he writes his law into our hearts and minds. As the author and finisher of our faith, he helps us with patience to run the race set before us so that we can finish that race and have the faith of Jesus. So when God has a group of people in the judgment, who keep the commandments of God, have the patience of the saints and the faith of Jesus, what does the devil have to say in the judgment? There's not a lot left that can be said because Christ died for our sins, so there's forgiveness. Christ has written his law into our hearts and minds, and Christ has finished his work in us so that we have his faith. So, in the judgment... There's no condemnation. Amen. And that's what it means when Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's Romans 8, 1. 
So who is he that condemneth? Hey, you can't because these people walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, notice verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the love of Christ? Based on Romans 8, what's the love of Christ? We see it throughout Romans 8. Obviously, it's that God spared not his own son, that Christ came and died for us. But look, it's that Christ died and that he's risen again and that he's making intercession for us at the right hand of God. Why is that loving? Because Christ is, as our high priest and as author and finisher of our faith, doing a work that will cause us to be justified in the judgment. So when any, any charge is laid to the elect, God justifies. When the devil tries to condemn, hey, Christ died, he's risen again, he's seated at the right hand of God making intercession for us, and because of that, he has a group of people that have God's law written in their hearts and minds, they have the same faith that Jesus has, and so there's no basis to Satan's charge at this point. And so the love of Christ is that he takes a group of people, takes them out of a world of sin, and saves them. And that's God's love. That's the love of Christ. So when we have the love of Christ on our side, which is Christ's death, Christ's justification, his intercession as our high priest and author and finisher of our faith, when we know all that about Christ, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? When you know that about God, when you know that about Christ, that Christ came as the, because the Father spared not his Son, then what is tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or perilous or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now this is interesting. Being accounted as sheep for the slaughter, we're following and we're going down a pathway. That pathway is tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. It's interesting that when we are joint heirs with Christ, we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. And this is the experience of God's sheep who are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And yet, the 144,000 follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. They are the sheep who go through tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. Verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So in all these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us because it's Christ that died, he's risen again, he's making intercession for us at the right hand of God. And so we know at the end of the day, we have justification. And if we have justification, we will also have glorification. So we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, 
which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now here's a, a very famous, famously quoted passage. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, what is this love of God that nothing shall separate us from? Look, when the devil lays any charge against God's elect, nope, God justifies. When the devil tries to condemn us, no, nope, it's God that justifies. He's at the right hand of God, and he's prepared a people who have, keep the commandments of God, have the patience of the saints, and the faith of Jesus. So no matter what we go through, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, if we are... If we face death, if we face principalities, powers, height, depth, any other creature, none of those things separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because when Christ justifies us, we have the hope of glorification and of eternal salvation. So nothing that we pass through in this life will separate us from the love of God. So it's interesting how Romans 1 through 8 goes. And I'll just take just a very short time to wrap this up. You start off in Romans with a group of people who are separated from God because they are under his condemnation. You have a group of people who walk after the flesh. You see in Romans 3 that the heart is deceitful and that the mind is turned away from God. We seek after our own thing. We're altogether gone out of the way and become unprofitable and that all the world is guilty before God in the judgment. And so the concept of the love of God and not being separated from God seems pretty far and pretty distant at the beginning of the book of Romans. But then we see the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ, come into the picture in Romans chapter 3. We say, well, how in the world is that possible? I can't live by that kind of faith. Well, actually, Romans 4 shows us Abraham did. That makes him the father of the faithful. And it was not only written for his sake, but for us also if we believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead. When we believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead, we're raised up to walk in newness of life. And just as death has no more dominion over Christ, sin has no more dominion over us because our old man has been crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be destroyed. And when we are dead to sin, we are justified. That's according to Romans 6. And when we are dead to sin, we become servants to God rather than servants to sin. And in Romans 7, we see that when the old man is crucified, we become married to Christ rather than to the old man of sin. And when we are married to Christ, that means we are one flesh with him, which is the mystery of godliness in Ephesians chapter 5. And then as we go down through Romans 7, then we see when you are a servant to sin, carnal, sold under sin, you walk after the flesh, you do the things you don't want to do, you don't do the things you want to do, and that's what it means to be carnal, to be at enmity with God, and that is death. But Romans 8 says there's a group of people who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. They are no longer under condemnation. And the power behind that is because Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned the power of sin in our flesh. So because of that, his righteousness can be fulfilled in us as we walk after the spirit, not after the flesh. We see that the spirit comes into us. We are filled with all the fullness of God and we're able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And when that happens, we are called 
called the sons of God, the children of God, joint heirs with Christ. We suffer together with him. And as we have that experience, when the devil comes against us and tries to lay anything to our charge, God says, nope, I've justified them. And I can be just as their justifier because... They walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So when Romans 3 says God can be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus, God is justifying someone who walks after the spirit and is now dead to sin. He's not justifying someone who's still sinning because that would make God a liar. And it's impossible for God to lie. So when God justifies us, we really are justified. And so in the judgment... We see that Christ is seated at the right hand of God and that he is our high priest and he is author and finisher of our faith so that he can have a group of people who have the new covenant experience of God's law written in their hearts and minds. Those who have run with patience the race set before them, laid aside every sin, every weight, and get to the end of the race and have the faith of Jesus. That is what Jesus is doing for us in his love on the right hand of God. So because of that, no matter what we pass through in this life, nothing will separate us from the love of God because we know that it's God that justifies even if Satan tries to condemn us hey it's God that justifies and when he justifies us he is just in doing so so once again verses 38 and 39 for I am persuaded and that's interesting Abraham was fully persuaded that what God promised he was able also to perform. Paul is saying, I, when I walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh, because I'm justified, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I pray that every one of us here will know what it is to have that experience, to know that we cannot be separated, that because of what Christ has done for us, we can have justification, we can have salvation, and we can be a representation of what God wants us to be to this world so that Jesus can come back very soon. Christ is seated on the right hand of the throne of God waiting for a group of people that will finish that race so that, so that he can stand up, come out of the most holy place, and come back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the whole creation earnestly waits for the manifestation of the sons of God, those who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So may we be among that group of people. I'm going to have a closing prayer for this class, and then I'm going to let Angie, um, if she wants to lead out in a closing prayer, or prayer time after this takeover. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you for the love of God, for justification, that, that God spared not his own son, but sent him to die so that we could be saved freely. Help us to give our lives completely. May we be crucified with Christ, dead to sin, living by the faith of Jesus so that Christ, seated at the right hand of God, can write his law into our hearts and minds so that we can finish the race that's been set before us. May we look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. And may we see Jesus come in the clouds of heaven very soon. We thank you for the power of the book of Romans and for all the promises that are in this book. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.